Well, we are uh, intentionally going to worship a little bit more on the back end instead of on the front end tonight. And part of that is we want to leave some opportunity to respond like normal to the, to the scripture. But, uh, but also, I feel like tonight being the last night of, of the semester, the last night of us studying this book, um, it's, it's an opportunity for us to look back and think, you know what, this is some of the things that God's done and some of the things that we, we have to be thankful for and praise him for from this semester. And I want to kind of start off by sharing uh, just one of the ways in which he's revealed himself to me this, this semester through scripture and through, really through, through prayer. Um, at the beginning of the semester, I, as well as many of you, uh, have been praying for adults uh, that, that God would give us uh, some, some older folks, you know, we're all adults, but older folks in the church, you know, to, uh, to, to pour into this ministry, to pour into our lives. And one of the things I felt very strongly about was, okay, by the end of this semester, uh, Lord, we've got to have our adults ready for, uh, for the fall. We need to have our leadership ready for the fall. And, and, and in my mind, that's 12 people in the church. Um, because in the fall, we're going to kick off three uh, life groups led by older folks in the church. Um, by older, I don't mean like, you know, old, old. I mean, you know, uh, you get what I'm saying. But um, <clears throat> some of them are here tonight, so I've got to be careful with my wordage. He's one of them. <laughs> about, <laughs> that was good. Yeah, you got some jokes up there, buddy. Uh, I might think about saying what I was going to say earlier. About a, about a month ago, um, about a month ago, looking back, it was maybe a little bit more than a month ago, I'm, I'm sitting here, and I, I started to think about this. Okay, looking for 12 by the end of the semester, and about a month ago, we had three. And I remember one Sunday morning leaving here, and as I was leaving, just, just praying, God, I pray that you would send us some adults, and specifically, Lord, I pray that you would lay it on the hearts or, or put this burning desire in the hearts of, of some of the people in this church to serve, specifically in our college ministry, but not just here, but in other places as well, but specifically in the college ministry. I, I, I'm, you need to hear this. I specifically played, prayed that God would lay it on some people's hearts, like a burning desire to serve. Okay, so about two weeks later, uh, after one of our worship services, I was standing up here towards the front of the stage, and, and somebody in the church came up and started to ask about one of the mission trips. And I don't remember what their question really was, but I guess I answered it. And as I was walking away, I just all of a sudden felt like I needed to go back and ask, where are you serving in the church? Where is you and your husband serving in the church? And so I walked back, and I asked that. And as soon as I asked that, she turns around, and she says, you have no idea how crazy it is that you just asked me that question. This is two weeks after praying what I prayed. And so I said, no, I don't know how crazy it is. Why don't you tell me? And, uh, and so she begins to explain about two weeks prior, or a couple weeks prior, um, she and her husband began to just read through some different things and just feel very challenged. Um, and, and specifically, she said, uh, we just have this burning desire <laughs> to serve and, uh, and, and, to, and, to get, and to get plugged in. And so, you know, from that came some other things. But that's one really cool way that God revealed himself to me um, and, and really to us. Another in that is going into next week, the reason I wanted to have our 12 leaders by next week was um, because next week we're having this leadership appreciation slash initiation time where we get everybody together and, you know, look ahead to the fall. And now we've got, I can officially say we have 10. Um, I, I think it's close enough to where I can say 12, um, but it's been cool to see how God's answered that prayer. And what I want you to hear in that tonight is this, the Lord is faithful in prayer. And, and we, see this, uh, we see this pattern in Paul's letters. Almost every one of Paul's letters, at the end of his letter, he challenges and he encourages his people to pray. We see that in some different places. And then tonight, even with James, we see the same thing. 
Uh, last week, as, as he begins this conclusion to his letter, he challenges us to persevere. He says, persevere in your faith. He says, persevere in your calling. Persevere together. And he says, look, you can't persevere in any of those ways unless you're persevering in Christ. So he says, persevere, 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 drilling at home. And then tonight, chapter 5, as we close this out, verse 13, he goes on. And listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 13, he says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. The first thing he says is, or he asks, is, is any one of you in trouble? Now, I, I know finals are like one week away or less than that. And I would love to know if there's a statistic out there that, that says this. But I, I, would, I would be willing to go to battle for the idea that this week and next week on college campuses all across America, there's more prayer happening than any other time of the year. Because some of you, I mean, some of you are in a very desperate place right now because you're realizing you've not prepared all year long to be ready for this final like you should have. Now, this, this has absolutely nothing to do with finals, but I remember my senior year, and I don't remember if it was fall or spring semester, but the first day of class, one of those semesters, I walked into this class, and I find my seat always up against the wall. It's a great place to snooze in class. And they, they pass around all the syllabuses, the syllabi, whatever they're called. And what's the first thing you do when you get a syllabus? You look to find out if there's an attendance policy. And so the first thing I did is I start flipping through that thing, you know, and, and I find the attendance policy. And sure enough, in this class, I see there is no attendance policy. Now, I had had this professor before, so I already knew that going to this class was going to be worthless because it wouldn't help me on the test, wouldn't help me on the quizzes. So as soon as I see there's no attendance policy, in my mind, I'm thinking, I ain't going to this class. And so I check the, uh, the assignments, and I see in the assignments, okay, once a week we have a quiz, no big deal, and then we have a couple tests. So all I had to do was, now... You're going to see something here. As I'm saying all I had to do, I've already forgotten about the quizzes. All I had to do was show up for the test. So I leave that class, and I put the syllabus in my backpack, which gets lost with everything else through the year. And, uh, and, I, and I left, and it was about a month later. I'm sitting in my room, and, I'm, and I'm, I don't remember what it was that reminded me of this class. But I had completely forgotten about this class. And so for a month... I had not been to this class. I didn't even remember that I had the class. And I had this moment where all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I forgot I have this class. And I've missed at least four quizzes at this point. And I looked at the syllabus and we had a test like a couple days away. I'll tell you this, I don't know if I've ever prayed so desperately or so hard in my life as I did in those moments. Now somehow I ended up passing the class barely, but... And so James says, he starts off tonight by asking, is any one of you in trouble? Now, he, he's, he's picking up really where he left off last week. Because last week, you know, he's saying persevere, 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 right? And then you get towards the end of what he was saying last week, and he gives us some brief examples. He says, you know, check out the prophets in the Old Testament. They persevered. They were suffering, and they persevered in their suffering. And then he says, Job, he suffered too, and he persevered. And so he's saying, look, are, are any of you in trouble? Are you suffering? Are you suffering like Job was suffering? Are you suffering like these Old Testament prophets were suffering? Are you suffering not because of a bad decision you've made, not because you've totally not prepared for this final like you should have, not because you totally forgot about the class, who does that? But he says, are you suffering because you have wholeheartedly given yourself to following Christ? He says, if that is you, if, if yes is the answer to that question, he says, you should pray. And then he goes on and he says, is any one of you happy. 
Now, let me explain what he means when he says this. This is not, are you happy like the Mavs pulled out an awesome victory last night and won, so you're stoked and excited, raised the roof happy. It's not that. This kind of happiness is the type of happiness that is not controlled by your outward circumstances. This is the happiness where you're happy regardless of what your outward circumstances are. Acts chapter 27, we see a very good example of this where this same word is used. Acts 27, beginning of verse 21, Luke is writing this book, and here's the context. It's the end of... It's the end of Acts, and so what we're seeing is Paul, he's on this ship on his way to Rome. He's been arrested, okay? So he's on his way uh, to Rome to be put on trial before Caesar. And this is what Luke says. He says, after the men had gone a long time without food, a little more context here, as they're on this ship, they're just facing this ridiculous storm. And, I mean, they've come to these places or these a couple points along the way where their ship, I mean, was being tossed around by these waves so violently that they shot, thought thought the ship was going to break up, thought they were going to crash, whatever. So they start throwing stuff overboard, trying to make it lighter, easier to maneuver through the waves. So they've, they've thrown all their food overboard. So <clears throat> verse 21, Luke says, After the men had gone a long time without food, without eating, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Your courage. Translated there is the same word that James uses to say happiness. So what James, or what Paul or what yeah what Paul's saying here is then I urge you to keep up or to, to be happy because not one of you will be lost only the ship will be destroyed verse 23 last night an angel of the god of the god whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said do not be afraid Paul you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you so keep up your courage there it is again so he says so stay happy Paul says so stay happy, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, and this is funny to me, nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. In other words, he's like, stay happy, but, I mean, this ship is seriously about to be in really bad shape. The happiness that James is writing of here in chapter 5 is this steadfast happiness that is based off of faith in what Christ can do regardless of what the circumstances are. So he says, if any one of you in trouble, you should pray. Is any one of you happy? Then he says, not pray. He says, you should sing songs of praise. Now, I want to give you an example of the first time I think I really begun to understand what this was like. A couple years ago, I was with a group in Peru. Now, we had been to the same place in Peru the year before. And where we were, a little bit of context here. Where we were in Peru is the Amazon rainforest area of Peru. So, anybody not know where Peru is? Okay, good. That would be bad. So, like, imagine you're looking at a map here in South America, okay? Peru runs along the Pacific coast. And along the coast are the, the what mountain range? Anybody? Andes Mountain. Yeah, they're, they're, they're awesome. They're huge. Okay, so you got the Andes Mountains over here. And on, on the other side, you have Brazil. But in between the border of Brazil and the Andes Mountains, you have this Amazon rainforest, okay? So the Amazon starts in Peru. And, and we're in central Peru in that rainforest, okay? It took us four days to get from here, like Dallas, to this area in the Amazon where these people were, where their villages were. Now, the year before we had been there, some cool things had happened. We built relationships with these people. So coming back this next year, we were looking forward to seeing these people we already knew. And, and we were looking forward to see the progress in the village spiritually. So we get there. Four days of travel, we get there. And when we get there, we pull up in our little pecky-pecky boat. It's, it's a glorified canoe with a really obnoxious motor that goes pecky-pecky-pecky. That's why they call it pecky-pecky boat. So we pull up. And there's about a five-minute hike from the river up to the village. And that's, it's like 300 feet in elevation. So the hike is, is pretty intense. You're going straight up. And we, we got there. We started unloading all of our equipment and taking it up to the village. Now, we had a lot of equipment. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, we, had, uh, we had a lot of equipment. So it took us a few trips 
to get up uh, to the top where the village is, unload it all, and get it all set up. After we unloaded our stuff, we went back down to the boat and then went about an hour's worth down the river to meet with the chief. And the first thing that we... Uh, the first thing that you do when you go into one of these villages is you meet with the chief and say, hey, we're here, and are, are you cool with us being here? Now, we knew the chief from the year before, but as soon as we sat down, we realized something was going to be different, something wasn't right. And so we start to talk with him, and basically what he says is, look, I'm glad that you're here, but the people in the village are not glad that you're here, and so you can't stay. Regardless of what your argument is, you can't stay. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you've got to be thinking, kidding me. Like, we have just traveled four days to get here. We've prepared for months for this. We have poured time, resources, all this stuff into this, and, and now you're telling us we can't be here. And so we had to turn around, and we had to walk back to our little pecky-pecky boat and get in and go back, get our stuff, and, and figure out something else to do in the Amazon. Um, and as we get in the boat, as we got in the boat, we're, we're, we untied and we start to you know, float away from the bank and before we started the motor, our missionary with us, his name was Johnny, he's from Peru, he says, before we, before we start, he says, we need to sing. And I looked at Johnny, I was like, Johnny, what, what are you talking about? Like, who, who does that, you know? And he's like, no, we, we need to sing. I was like, Johnny, I am not going to sing right now, we're not going to sing right now. Like, I was mad, I really was mad. And he goes, no, like, we need to sing because God is good. And so he said, what hymns do you know? Now every Christian goes to their go-to hymn, which is Amazing Grace. So we started singing Amazing Grace. And, uh, and then that turned into a couple other things. And I, let me tell you what happened. In that moment, we began to see, like, the joy that Johnny had even in the face of rejection. And as we saw the joy that Johnny had in the face of rejection, it began to change my heart. And it began to change the rest of the team's heart. And the result was God continued to work. The rest of that trip was incredible. And the things that happened on that trip, um, they were incredible. So James says... If you're, if you're happy, then sing songs of praise. Some of you were thinking, I, I know what you're thinking. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Okay. But then James says, listen to this. Is any one of you sick? He asks a third question. And listen to how he answers. He says, is any one of you sick? If so, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. First, he says this. If you're in trouble, you should pray. And then he says, if you're happy, you should should pray or you should sing songs of praise. But here, like the focus there so far is if, if this is how you feel, then this is how you should respond. This is what you should do. You should pray. But here he changes it up a little bit. And the more that I study this text, and I've preached this text before, and it was true what I preached, but it, I didn't really get what James was saying here. And the more I've studied this text, like the more I understand and see the intentionality in him changing it up like he does right here, especially in light of the bigger picture and what he's trying to communicate in this letter. So instead of now, he says, if you're sick, you should pray. He now says, if you're sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now I want to break this down, okay? He, he basically says three things here, and I want us to see these three things that he says. First, he says, if you're sick, call the elders of the church. Now, Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you're sick, elders are leaders. So if you're sick, call the leaders of the church. Now, now think about this, okay? He's not, he's not saying, he's not hinting at this idea that the leaders or the elders in the church have this special healing power that's different than anything anybody else could do. There are places in Scripture where it talks about this spiritual gift of healing. This is not one of them. It's not like he's hinting here that these leaders in the church have this special connection to God that none of the other people in the church have. That's not what he's saying. Think about this. 
What happens when you call together and you gather together the leaders of the church? Well, the rest of the church is going to follow. That's why they're called leaders. So he says, when you're sick, call together the leaders of the church. Now, we've got to address our understanding of the word church here, because I know that when I'm saying church, the first thing you're probably thinking of is this big church here, like First Baptist Church or Denton Bible Church or the Village Church. But in context of what he's saying here, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the 1,200 people that are here to worship on Sundays. Instead, I think a better example of what he's talking about is, is your smaller local community of believers. And in this ministry, here's what that takes the shape as. We have house churches that meet during the week, student-led community groups that meet throughout the week. I think that really right there probably almost perfectly fits the context of what James is talking about. We have a life group. In the future, we'll have life groups, plural. I think life groups would fit perfectly the context in which James is talking about. So when he says, call the elders of the church, what he's really saying is, call your house church leader. He's saying, call your life group leader. If you're sick, call together this faith family. Call together this community. Now, this is huge, and we're going to see why in like two seconds. Because he says, call the elders of the church. And then he says, have them pray over you. So once the community is together, he says, have them pray over you. Instead of you pray... He says, now have them pray. Now, here's why this is big. Community is a big, stinking deal. If you refuse to plug into the deeper community in the church, then you are missing out on it. You don't have this option. You can't call your close faith family when you're in trouble. You can't call your close faith family when you're struggling. And you miss out on this integral part of the function of the church. And so James says, call together the elders of the church. Call together the leaders of the church. Essentially, call together your your church, the family, the community, and have them pray over you. And then he says something else. He says, and have them anoint you or anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what's the significance of him saying this? There's there's a lot of, like, discussion around this and maybe some controversy even, whatever. Um, There's a few ideas of what James might mean when he says anoint them with oil or what's the significance of him saying anoint them with oil Uh, probably three ideas one is it could have been medicinal like it was medicine I don't know Vicks vapor rub or something like that you know rub it on him rub it on his face it'll feel better Um, some people think it was maybe something like that some people think it was more of like sacramental like um, I don't know some people think it was maybe symbolic regardless of what the different ideas of what the anointing of the oil was ultimately the the significance of that is totally subordinate to this greater picture that he's trying to show us and the greater picture is this the fact that the church comes together and they and they pray and they and they take action here's what James is trying to say in this he's saying the church coming together in prayer and in action is the means through which God brings healing the church coming together in prayer and in action is the means through which God brings, God brings healing. Now, this is, this is where we begin to draw back into the greater picture because it's not just believers who are troubled. It's not just Christians who face troubled times. It's not just Christians or believers who get sick or who are sick. The reality is we live in a troubled world. We live in a sick world. We live in a world where there's often not really any steadfast happiness in spite of, and even, well, there's not a lot of steadfast happiness when the, when the circumstances around us aren't positive. 
And, and here's the crazy thing. There's not a lot of steadfast happiness, the kind that James talks about, even in spite of positive circumstances around us. The world that we live in is, is plagued with, with cancer. It's plagued with colds. It's plagued with, it's plagued with climate change. It's plagued with crippledness. It's plagued with, uh, with catastrophes. It's plagued with crimes. It's plagued with people being sad, crying. The world that we live in is desperate for healing. Your campus is desperate for healing. A couple weeks ago, uh, I, I taught on, uh, not to this group, I taught to another group, uh, on Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Now, I want to read you this verse because I want you to understand this question that was asked afterwards. The verse says this, in this gospel, Jesus is talking, Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says, in this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, we can't predict the timing of Christ's return. But according to this passage, we potentially can have an impact on the timing of Christ's return. Because you hear what he says. He says, I'm coming back. But first, something's going to happen. And and what's going to happen is the gospel will be preached. But specifically, the gospel, and let me back up. Who's going to preach the gospel? Yeah, we are. I mean, the people who've believed it, the people who've heard it, they're the ones who are going to preach the gospel. So you and I, we're the ones preaching the gospel, okay? So we are automatically the, the, the... cause that leads to the effect of Christ for coming back, okay? But there's two qualifying factors. One is the gospel will be preached in the whole world, like all the inhabited earth, every country, every region, every place where there's people. But the second thing is to, as a testimony to all nations. Nations is ethnos in Greek. It means like tribes or troops or people groups. There's 11,000 plus people groups in the world. Over 6,000 of those have never heard the gospel before. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, before I come back, all the world's going to hear the gospel, and, and so essentially, and since we're the ones who are preaching it, essentially we have potentially an impact on the time of Christ's return. Okay, so after that, after that, the next day, I wasn't a part of this conversation. It was told to me later on. Somebody afterwards came up and asked somebody else, why would I want to speed up or be concerned about speeding up the timing of Christ's return? And the person that they were asking that from said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, if, I, if Christ comes back tomorrow or if Christ comes back in 40 years, what does it matter? I'm still going to go to heaven. Or if I die tomorrow, or if I die in 40 years, what does it matter? I'm still going to go to heaven. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with, with that response, okay? There's a lot of things wrong with that question. But one is this. It's easy for someone like you and me, who lives in a middle-class, comfortable situation, to say something like that. But think about this. What about somebody who is living in a poverty-stricken, a disease-stricken, a war-stricken part of the world? Do you think that they would ask that question? I don't think they would, and here's, here's why. The cures for poverty, the cures for disease, and the cures for, for war um, go way beyond money, go way beyond medicine, go way beyond peacemaking. Those things only temporarily ease the problem. Those things only partially fix it, but they don't, they don't cure it. So the reason that somebody living in a poverty-stricken, disease-stricken, war-stricken part of the world would not ask that question is because if there really is a Savior, if there really is somebody who is going to come back and restore the world and fix all of these things, then the only cure is him for those things. And if we, if that person could actually speed up that process, well, shoot, they're going to die trying if they don't get to see it themselves. Jesus Christ is the only cure for a world or for a campus that is desperate for healing. You've got to hear that. And you've got to hear that because this is where the church comes into play. And if the church is in play, that means you are in play. Because as the body of Christ, a.k.a. the church, 
or Jesus in tennis shoes, our number one reason for existence is to be used by God to bring healing to this world. Healing happens in and through the church. And listen to what James goes on to say, verse 15, he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Will, will, will. Three times. There is certainty in that. It is a promise. And the promise is when the church comes together in prayer and in action, change will occur. Healing will happen. Therefore, James says, beginning in verse 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. He says, confess your sins to each other. He doesn't say, if you have sin, then confess. He says, oh, you got some sin. And he says, confess it. He says, get rid of it. He says, confront these issues. Confront the obvious issue of sin in your life. All the stuff that he's been writing about the past five chapters, all the stuff we've been talking about the past 12 weeks, he says, wake up to the fact that that is in your life. Address it. Confess it. Change it. Because sin hinders our progress. Sin hinders our relationship with God. It distorts our vision. It disrupts our mission. And sin puts a halt to healing. And ultimately, sin slows and even sometimes stops the church. So he says, confess your sins to each other. And then he goes on, he says, pray pray for each other so that you may be healed. James first says, deal with what's in your own heart. Before you do anything, deal with what's in your own heart. If you don't first deal with what's deal with what is in your own heart, then the second part, it it won't happen. If you don't first deal with the sin that is in your own heart, instead of praying for each other, you're going to be jealous of each other. And jealousy leads to bitterness towards each other, which leads to a lot of this friction against each other. If you don't deal first with what's in your own heart, instead of praying for the church, you're going to be mad at the church. And because you're mad at the church, you're going to disengage from the church because you don't like how it looks. You don't like what you see. But after you deal with what's in your own heart and confess what is in your own heart, then he says, pray for each other. Pray for the church. Don't be jealous about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be jealous in such a way that it leads you to to bash them, talk down about them because they're having more success than you. Instead, pray for them. Encourage them. Once you've dealt with this stuff in your own life, don't be mad at the church. Don't disengage from the church. Instead, pray for it. And pour yourself into it, recognizing that you can be the change for whatever it is that you don't like in it. So he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And then he goes on, he says this, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, the way the NIV translates the word dikayu, which is the Greek word translated there as as a righteous man. Now, I I want you to see this. Dikayu is an adjective in Greek, all right? The adjective is righteous. Every once in a while in Greek, just like in English, an adjective can stand alone as a noun, and function as a noun. An example would be this, the word good, like good man, or good boy, or good team. Um, Good is an adjective, but good can stand alone as a noun, so like the good will win in the end. Like that works as a noun, make sense? But with that, if you look at that in context of, of what you're reading, you could potentially plug in there, the good man will win in the end. You see where I'm going with this? Or if the context says it's plural, you could say the good men will win in the end. And so it changes what you, how you allow that adjective to function as a noun. Well, just like in English that can happen, it can happen in Greek too. 
And I'm not sure that in this Greek where it just says righteous, that's all it says, there's not, man is not in the Greek, it's just righteous. I'm not sure that putting man there is the best possible thing to do. I'm not saying it's wrong. It, it still fits. It's still true. But when you look at the context of everything James is saying here, everything he's saying is focused on the community of believers. And so it could easily be said, instead of the prayer of a righteous man, it could be instead said the prayer of a righteous people, or the prayer of a righteous community, or the prayer of a righteous church is powerful and effective. And some of you have the New American Standard, and instead of translating that last part, powerful and effective, it, it it instead says it can accomplish much. So what it might well say is the prayer of a righteous church can accomplish much. In other words, what he's saying is when the church comes together like this, like he's described here, confronting these big issues and changing, then praying, engaging in this spiritual battle with Christ as the body of Christ, the impact the church can have is immeasurable. Now, listen to that. Does that sound familiar? In light of everything we've studied these past 12 weeks, I know it's hard to remember 12 weeks ago, all the way back to week one, but do you remember what we were saying in week one, the whole gist of this letter, the whole purpose of this letter? James has come full circle here. I'm going to read word for word from my notes in week one. This is what I said, or what we said and saw in in week one. James confronts the church with this sense of urgency, knowing that if they changed, if they woke up, they had the nations right there at their fingertips. Y'all remember that, right? And then he goes on, this is why we're studying this book. This is what we said. This is why we're studying this book this semester. We have the nations at our fingertips. If only we would wake up and confront some of the big, obvious issues and change, then the impact we can have is immeasurable. I mean, he has come completely full circle. And he goes on back to chapter 5 now. And he says, if you want proof, look at some of the men and some of the women that have gone before you. Verse 17, he says, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a key figure in the Old Testament. Man, he was legendary, immortalized. He was held as a hero of the faith. In 1 Kings 17, that's kind of where his story begins, all the way through the beginning of 2 Kings. The things that God used him to do in his life were incredible. And I love the example that James gives here. Verse 17, he says he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. But then you go on, it says, again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Beyond Elijah just seeing the earth produce a harvest, as a result of his life, beyond just seeing this physical harvest, what he ended up seeing was a spiritual harvest as well, similar to what Jesus talks about in Matthew 9, where he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. James could have plugged in other people here other than just Elijah, and so could we. Like, there's a guy that I, I, he's one of my heroes. His name's Hudson Taylor. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a missionary to China in the 1800s. He abandoned everything, everything to move to China and to give his life to trying to get the gospel into the most dangerous, most hard-to-reach inland remote areas of China. And one of his goals at the beginning of his mission was that the gospel would reach every single province of China before he was done. And amazingly, through this one man this massive movement of God was sparked. And through this one man, the gospel successfully reached every single province of that huge country, China. Now, whether it's something that we do consciously or subconsciously, when it comes to somebody that's famous or somebody that kind of falls in the category of legendary, it's, it's almost as like we see them as superhuman. 
I don't know if I don't know if it's a conscious thing, but you know what I'm saying. Like we we view these people as superhuman. Perfect example. Uh, about 20 years ago, this new f- phase of music kind of started. Uh, the the boy the boy band phase. Um, now it's so, it's hard to think it started 20 years ago, but it was about 20 years ago. And and there was a band that really played a big part in uh, getting this to take off. And it's uh, it, they go by the name of New Kids on the Block. Some of you know. Okay, yeah, step by step. Ooh, baby. Um, the right stuff. Okay, so I'm going to stop. Anyways, my sister, she's three years older than me, so she was like maybe 10, I don't know, during that time. And oh my gosh, uh, anytime she heard their songs on the radio, she would flip out. Anytime she put her little audio cassette in the little tape player, she would freak out and go crazy. She and my, my cousin from Colorado, they made all these videos, which I hope I can find one day. They made all these videos of doing the same dance moves that new kids on the block did together. Um, and even today, like with their resurgence, you know, this was ridiculous, by the way. Like, when she hears their song, she still goes crazy and gets excited. And I have to confess to you. Um, my, uh, my sister's birthday uh, was last week. And so for her birthday, uh, I bought her and um, myself uh, some tickets to, uh, to go see New Kids on the Block and the Backstreet Boys together in Dallas uh, this summer. So anyways, she's going to freak out and go crazy. Well, she already knows she has the tickets. She freaked out. But, but take Elijah and take Hudson Taylor, for, for example. The Jews had done the exact same thing to Elijah that my sister has done for New Kids on the Block. The Jews had done the exact same thing for Elijah that, that I have done for Hudson Taylor and other, other people like that. But listen to what James says about Elijah. I, I skipped over this in the beginning. I don't know if you saw this. Verse seven, 17. It says, Elijah was what? He was a man just like us. James says he wasn't superhuman. He didn't have these extraordinary powers. He had aches and pains just like you. He got tired just like us. He had emotions just like us. And he had limitations just like us. So what I have to ask is, all right, what was it in Elijah? What was it in Hudson Taylor that set them apart if they weren't superhuman? Why was it or how was it that God was able to use these guys to do such incredible things? And it's one single word. Simple word, not that complicated. It's the word faith. But specifically, it's real faith. And it's the faith that James has been talking about for the past, for the past five chapters. Week one, we said this. James writes this letter questioning the authenticity of these people's faith, which essentially means as we read it, James is questioning the authenticity of your faith, of my faith. Is your faith really real? Is my faith real? And he does so by confronting some of these big obvious issues and then challenging us to immediately change. What does James say about this real faith? What are some things, qualities that he gives? Here's some things that we've seen in the past five weeks. Faith listens. Faith loves. Faith cares. Faith obeys. Faith risks. Faith works. Faith speaks. Faith, last week, perseveres. Faith, Faith, this week, prays. And when you take all of this stuff, faith submits. When you take all of this stuff and you put it together, you see that, that faith, it, it commits. Faith is devoted. And so this whole letter, James is trying to show these people that God is looking for a few very ordinary people with an extraordinary devotion that he can use to change the world. My granddad was one of those guys, I think, who God used in an incredible way to change a lot of people's lives. 
He died about three and a half years ago. And when he died, you know, people get obituaries in the paper, but he also got a, 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 an article in the Dallas Morning News written about him. And the article was titled this, A Spiritual Mentor to Many. His name was Cullum Thompson. I want to read you just a couple quotes from the article. Cullum was always interested in selling life insurance, but he was more interested in the assurance of life. He was interested in helping people, especially interested in perpetuating his beliefs that were really dear to him. He said to me once just recently that he didn't want to go to heaven and be accused of not helping people know the Lord. At, at, at his funeral, it was pretty incredible to see a church, a big church, full of all these businessmen, powerful, some of the most powerful businessmen in the city, in the region, in the state, some of them in the nation, came to my granddad's funeral. And I'll never forget my last conversation with him. I was sitting in his house. We were in his room, and he was not doing well with his health, and I was about to go back to Lubbock. And so I kind of had an idea this might be my last conversation with him, and I think he knew that too. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit of a physical touch guy, you know, so high fives, a lot of high fives, things like that. And I, I, I had this tradition with my granddad. I'd always rub his, I'm not superstitious, but I always kind of rub his head, you know, uh, before I'd leave. That'd be the last thing I'd do. I'd, you know, rub his little head, and then I'd leave, um, whatever. But I'm sitting there, and I was, he was in his chair, and he was having a really good day health-wise. Like, he was actually able to carry on a, a, a good conversation. And I was kind of kneeled down by his chair so I could hear him better and he could hear me. And I, I was holding his hand. And we talked. And after we got done talking, I said, I love you. And I got up. And, and as I was walking out the door and began to turn the corner down his hallway, I heard him, you know, as loud as he could, say, I dare you. And I turned around and I said, what? And he looks at me and he goes, I dare you. And I said, you dare me to what? And he just kind of, with this little smirk on his face, he says, I dare you. And so I left, and that was his last words to me. I, I, I left thinking, okay, what the heck does that mean? But, but think about this. When you know, when you know, that, um, when you know that it's probably your last chance to talk to somebody that you love or to see somebody that you love, what's the last thing you want to say to them? You want to say, I love you. And that's what I said to him. But my granddad instead to me, <laughs> He said, I dare you. Now, now, I wondered for a really long time what the heck he was talking about. And, and I wondered for about a year, of, up until about a year after he had died. And about a year after he had died, uh, we were at his house cleaning out some of the last stuff that he had there. My grandmother had already passed away a couple years before, so they had just sold the house, and we were getting all the stuff out of there. And as we were cleaning the stuff out of the house, uh, we found something that my granddad had left behind. Now, I look forward to somebody telling you what that was. But for now, it'll suffice to say this. When we found what it was that my granddad left behind, I knew almost immediately what he meant when he said, I dare you. My granddad was saying, I dare you to give everything that you have for this book right here. He was saying, I dare you to give everything you have for God's word. I dare you to give everything that you have for the gospel. Those were his last words to me. And his last words to me were his most important words to me. I dare you. And as we close out this study in this letter, this series, we come up to James's very last words. And his last words are by far the most important words. Listen to what he says. 
In verse 19, he says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, my brothers, if you would just come together like this as a family, as a community, as this local church, and if you would confront these ways in which you've wandered away from the truth, the ways in which you have fallen into this sin, and then you would change, oh my gosh, he's saying, you will see so many lives changed. You will see so many lives transformed. And you will see a harvest, he says, and you will see such a huge impact made be immeasurable. I want you to imagine this. 2,000 years ago, these people that James is actually writing this letter to, the first time that they've actually sat down together as this local church, and they're reading through it for the first time. The leader's up there. He's got the scroll. He's reading. They've, they've read through all five chapters, and they're coming to the end. There's 50 people, maybe 100, maybe 200 people there. And they come to these last words. And, and part of the way, you know, the, the leader, he's explaining what James means. But then they come to these last words, and the guy reads these last words. And after he reads these last words, he, he takes that scroll, and he begins to roll it up and put it away. Picture with me. Imagine with me what was taking place in that room. Imagine the tone. Imagine the mood. Imagine what they were thinking. What were they doing in that moment? And here was the most important thing for them, which is the most important thing for us. It did not matter. You know, we saw the first week that that church, Acts 8-1, scattered. They ran for the lives. <laughs> Cowards. And at this point in the game where they finished this letter, what happened all the way back in Acts 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, didn't matter anymore. Who they were, what they did, what they had done two weeks prior, it didn't matter anymore. The only thing that mattered is what they did from that point forward. The only thing that mattered is what they did with this letter that this guy who cared about them had written to them. What, what mattered is how they responded to these words that they had just heard. And the same is true for us tonight. It doesn't matter who you were or what you were doing all the way back in January when we started reading this thing. And it doesn't even matter what you were doing week 11 last week. The only thing that matters at this point is what do you do with this? It's been given to you. We've studied it. Now what happens from here? Man, I love the way James ends this thing because you know what he's saying, right? Those last two verses, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I dare you. Seriously, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I dare you. I dare you to give up everything to follow Christ. I dare you to give every piece of yourself to follow Christ. And if you do, he says, you will see a harvest. If you do, you will have a huge, huge, huge impact.